But I want people to know that if you see stuff in a brain map that is real, you can almost always change it. If it's not real, who cares? If it is real, you have agency. Mm-hmm. So brain mapping is not diagnostic, but if we find real things, you can exercise those things and make them change almost always. So the brain's hard to understand, but not hard to push around. Hi there, welcome back to Pursuing Health. I am very excited to share this unique episode with you that I recorded with Dr. Andrew Hill, who's the founder of the Peak Brain Institute and a lecturer at UCLA, where he also received his PhD in cognitive neuroscience. At Peak Brain, Dr. Hill provides individualized training programs to help you optimize your brain across goals of stress, sleep, attention, brain fog, creativity, and athletic performance. He's the host of the Head First podcast and continues to do research on attention and cognitive performance as well. Dr. Hill is also a leading practitioner of something called neurofeedback, and I have personally been a client of his for neurofeedback since December of 2021. I started this program as a way to improve my own brain function, things like rumination, anxiety, and focus. And I have been blown away by the results I'm seeing in myself from subjective improvements in things like rumination, anxiety, and emotional sensitivity and focus to an objective increase in my deep sleep on a regular basis. As I've learned more about the different applications for this tool, I'm also very excited about its potential for mental and emotional health. I also had a very interesting experience during the course of my neurofeedback treatment where my QEEG or brain map picked up new post-COVID neuroinflammation and we were able to subsequently treat that with neurofeedback. So I'm excited to share my experience here with you and dive into my own brain map with Dr. Hill. If you're watching on video, you'll be able to see all the details, but he also does a great job of talking through it. And as a side note, I'm sharing this on the podcast purely because I believe in it, and I think more people should know about this tool. I did not get any special discounts myself on neurofeedback and have no financial investment in peak brain. Dr. Hill does mention at the end that podcast listeners can get a discount on brain mapping at peak brain. You don't need a code for this. Just let them know when you sign up where you heard about it. So with that, let's get to the episode. All right. Well, welcome to Pursuing Health. Today, I'm very excited to be here with Dr. Andrew Hill, who's the founder of Peak Brain Institute, a leading neurofeedback practitioner and also a biohacking coach for clients across the globe. He's lectured on psychology, neuroscience, and gerontology at UCLA's Department of Psychology, where he received his PhD in cognitive neuroscience. And a little bit more about Peak Brain. There, Dr. Hill provides individualized training programs to help you optimize your brain across goals of stress, sleep, attention, brain fog, creativity, and athletic performance. He's also the host of the Head First podcast and continues to do research on attention and cognitive performance. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hill. Thanks for having me, Julie. Nice to be here. Appreciate it. Well, I thought we could start with where your love for this organ called the brain first began, because I remember for me specifically being in high school and taking my first psychology course and being absolutely fascinated. I took it same time I took biology and those two courses were what really led me towards medicine, I think. And I also remember reading this book. I don't know if you've ever read it called Another Day in the Frontal Lobe. No, I <laughs> haven't actually. A, I, it was I'm, by a neurosurgeon, but it just shared a lot of her perspective on her patients and her understanding of the brain. And I remember being enamored. And for a while, I thought I wanted to be a neurosurgeon and then went a different route. But mm-hmm. <laughs> all that to say, how did you first become so fascinated by the brain? I mean, I don't know. I was one of these people who probably always took everything apart when I was a kid and had to understand how things worked. 
And I grew up in the 70s, you know, sort of just before the computer era. Had I been in the 80s or 90s, I would have ended up, you know, becoming a programmer probably. But the mysterious stuff that we could explore ended up, you know, I, I had sort of a different brain as a kid myself. I was ridiculously ADHD, about the worst mm. that anyone's ever met. Not okay. so much anymore through some of the tools I use, but mm-hmm. um, really in the way, like dramatically different than average uh, in terms of the average uh, kid, teen, mm-hmm. even adult. And that was sort of getting me thinking a lot about the features that I was having trouble controlling, my attention, stress, that kind of stuff. And then when I was in grade school, my younger brother, I grew up in New England, and my younger brother sledded out into the street uh, in the winter and hit by a car oh, wow. and was in a coma for a month and a half or something, two months. And when he came out of it, having lost a piece of his brain, he ended up having to spend uh, several months, you know, relearning some basic features. And there's a happy ending here. Years later, he's you know largely typical. Has successful career, a family, college degree, everything. But mm-hmm. there was this recovery period where I was like, well, wait a minute. He's you know a seven year old or eight year old or something, and he suddenly is back to a two year old and some of the functions like balance and some of the language stuffs impaired. And this was a little brief event. Consciousness was dramatically impacted, and now on the far side of it resources don't seem to be uniformly impaired, but there's this recovery process. It was very mysterious to me seeing these big shifts of consciousness and big shifts of resources. That's amazing. So you had such a personal connection to it yourself and through your brother. Before we dive in, would you explain what neurofeedback is for people? Sure. Sure. So um, neurofeedback, just as a basic technology, was discovered somewhat by mistake about 60 something years ago. And I can explain the fun story if you want at some point. But um, basically, it is it's a form of what's called operant conditioning or shaping uh, on things you can't normally feel. So just like basic learning, most learning, all learning we know about basically is, is a form of associative learning. You associate two things. Uh, Pavlov's dog, a light and food makes you, so eventually the light makes you mm-hmm. drool, the same way the food made you drool. It's an associative learning called classical conditioning. This is not that. This is Skinner's pigeons. Pigeons already peck. So if Skinner fed them, whenever they pecked a certain pattern, they started to peck that pattern more. So it's reinforcement learning or, or, or shaping of something that already exists. So neurofeedback will simply measure a brainwave you make, some parameter, blood flow or brainwaves. And when I say brainwaves, I mean the amounts of electricity or the speeds or maybe the connectivity between regions. And you measure something that you're already doing on your own. So for instance, let's say just to give folks a, a more concrete example to, to ground it for a second. Um, there's a, a circuit in the back middle of the head whose job it is to evaluate the world around you and help you orient your attention. The back of the world's the outside. Uh, it's the back of the head's the outside world. So the posterior cingulate's job is to go, ah, watch the road, watch the road, or he- heads up Frisbee, or scan the ocean for the person drowning if you're the lifeguard, or be alert, be vigilant, be on, be evaluating and ready to reorient and act. That's the posterior cingulate's job. We all have one. Sometimes we learn, the brain learns, the world is not safe or predictable. And, and the cingulate cramps up, kind of like your lower back might spasm up in a car accident so you can walk away. Well, the cingulate ramps up in the presence of acute danger or unpredictable stress, and you now are, are evaluating for the possibility of that in the future. Mm-hmm. If this is really bad, we call it PTSD. But there's a whole spectrum of that circuit being a little hot, a little irritable for you, and that can be built in or can be acquired. And it's a ruminative state, a chewing on things, a stuck in your gut, a threat sensitivity. It's kind of unease. We have a similar circuit in the front called the anterior cingulate. If that gets stuck, 
you get a little bit OCD. You have songs in your head and you uh, maybe bite your nails or have a little intrusive thoughts or whatever. And we all have these circuits. Most anxiety flavors, by the way, are, are like that. They're not diseases. They're mm-hmm. existing circuits that have cramped up or spasmed or gotten strained. So think of anxiety as being out of shape or being mildly you know, tweaked, not like having a disease mm-hmm. ultimately. Um, it can be a really uncomfortable you know, uh, sprain of that resource dramatically. Mm-hmm. Spraining your ankle can hurt a lot worse than breaking your ankle. A lot worse. But and, and having trauma is, is, is significantly uncomfortable for people. But understanding that's a natural thing that's there for a bunch of reasons may help you change your relationship with it. And if you look at a brain map, which is a tool we use, a QEG, a tool we use to look at people's brains, is a tool used to inform what you go after in neurofeedback. So let's say we saw on a brain map, and we'll get yours, I think, at some point, um, the cingulates will, would have in some people little hot blobs of beta waves. If you, if you were perseverative, little obsessive, or ruminative, little threat sensitive, and they often work together as part of the default mode network, the sense of self, reverie, the world, that's the default mode network, the background stuff. Um, if somebody wanted to work on a sense of rumination and threat sensitivity and they were activated and this is a big concern for them, I would encourage them to train down the activity there a little bit and see how they felt, see if it was the right direction. So you stick a wire there and you measure the beta waves, the activation tone of that circuit. You also measure the alpha waves, which is a neutral resting frequency, like the car in the driveway between modes. And each circuit can make all things at once to some extent. So a certain amount of beta is there all the time and a certain amount of theta, and it changes moment to moment. So we stick a wire back there and a couple of ear clips on and measure the cingulates pumping out alphas and beta amount as those things change relative just to you and the amount you're actually making. For this exercise, for this example, Whenever the alpha happens to go up and the beta happens to go down on its own, the computer will notice that and go, ooh, good job, brain, and applaud a little bit and make a little game start running or make audio start happening. The brain's like, wait a minute, stuff. I, I kind of like stuff. And a few seconds later, the brainwaves move in the wrong direction. And stuff stops. The brain's like, wait, why'd that Pac-Man stop moving? Why'd that music go away? That's kind of weird. A couple of seconds later, it happens to move in the right direction. The game resumes applauding. The brain's like, hey, wait a minute. The outside world is tied to me. And it, it doesn't know any different from a car or a musical instrument you're trying to figure out or even your own body. I mean, the br- human brain is great. Many uh, uh, advanced mammals are great. They map tools onto their brain. If you're really good with a pencil or a paintbrush or a fencing foil, your brain has a representation of it like it's your finger mm-hmm. and, and has a sense of it as a tool. I mean, when you first pick up the car and try to drive or the the fencing weapon or the, the bicycle, it feels awkward. And it's like, that, oh, oh. <laughs> but eventually it's like part of your body. It feels like clothes. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, we have that ability to, uh, to, to reach a, to bind information essentially. But in this case, we just exercise down, applaud whenever your brain made some more alpha in the cingulates. You might or might not notice anything, but a couple hours later, your brain would go, you know, I, I was getting information happening with more alpha. I kind of want information, please. And it just raises the alpha briefly. And you go, oh, I feel something. I mean, you can't often feel the training because you can't control your brain waves or feel them. But you can feel them surging later on in response to the ask. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of this involuntary exercise. And big trick here for the operant conditioning people listening going, wait, is that we move the goalposts every so often. We adjust so that the, 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 the rise in theta every so often for several seconds, let's say, or alpha, is what's rewarded. So the brain learns that 
long runs of increased alpha are, are something that's interesting and decreasing your beta for a while is interesting. And after several days of this, it starts to build up. And one little session just pro provokes a little effect. The brain swings out and then back to ground. But if you keep doing it, you start getting movement in the resources. So sleep, stress, attention, how you're feeling moment to moment, the, the things related to the circuit you're working on will start to shift. And the person can experience that. I joke it's a, it's a mysterious but not a blind process because as you do it, you get this lingering effect each time that you can evaluate and figure out, am I moving towards my goals? So this is to some extent why I take a neurofeedback out of that treatment space and psychology space and doctor doing things to you space and into a space of personal training of, hey, let's teach you about your brain, mm -hmm. let's give you some agency, let's have you map your brain on caffeine if you want, let's have you move through stressors and transformation. Let's push on your brain with neurofeedback. Let's give you life hacks to play with. And, and as you feel different, you can go back to data and look at your attention performance on really good testing and look at brain maps. And they're hard to understand, as I was saying at the beginning, but they are stable for, for one person. So if your brain maps start to change suddenly, and this happened with you, we saw brain maps mm -hmm. in the fall that were interesting and had a few things that might be worth optimizing. And then we saw you again in March. And I said to the data team, I, what's going on here? This data doesn't look right. Let's get fresh data. We had you remap because mm -hmm. we weren't sure what we were seeing. And it looked somewhat similar. The remap was, was valid data. It just was very different. Something had changed. And it hadn't changed in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And yet your performance, your attention test, because you've been doing neurofeedback, were actually better, which we can look at if you want. But you had gotten COVID, I think, right? You got mm -hmm. some, some illness had, had knocked you over, some big stressor. Yeah. And I was yeah. seeing the consequence of it and not knowing what I was seeing. And it didn't make sense. But that's the, the scientific thing is you look at the data, you go, what's sticking up? Why can we interpret it? Is there a valid model for it? And it ended up being not bad data like I first thought, but you know, the brain being fo very foggy, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and on checking with you, we discovered that. And you know, we have some interesting look on it. We also then have the agency to keep an eye on it as you continue to work on your brain. And we mapped your brain again, and we saw mm -hmm. that, you know, we saw the, the sort of COVID-induced fog and stress right afterwards, and we saw you continue to, to recover over time. So, Absolutely, um, yeah. It's been a very um, interesting experience for me, and I love your comparison to personal training and thinking mm -hmm. about this training that we do for our brains the same way we do exercise for our muscles and sort of the analogy between those. Um, and like you said, it's, it's this idea of experimenting, but using the data to guide us and to create hypotheses and see if we're moving in the right direction. So I'd love to talk through sort of my experience of, of how this, sure. how this experience works for neurofeedback. And then what were some of the things that we found and have been working on with my brain specifically? Sure. You bet. Um, you want to maybe tell us, uh, tell the audience how, what, <laughs> what made you look for neurofeedback or how you found it? Was it through one of your relationships or partners, or I forget how you found it exactly? It was uh, actually, um, my significant other Lincoln had been doing neurofeedback himself and had seen some improvements. And this was only a few months into him starting, but, hmm. um, I thought, well, you know, this seems worth trying. So I decided to go get a brain map. So the first step is getting the brain map, which you can do in person at one of your offices in LA or um, New York. So I was in New York and got a brain map right around Christmas time. And you just sit, you have, you know, Monica was the person that I worked with. Yep. She's wonderful. And you she sit is. and you are not allowed to drink coffee that morning That's or take any of your part. supplements. It's the hardest part. 
Um, I remember trying so hard not to fall asleep, but <laughs> you wear a cap and put gel in all of the different um, leads and then record your brain activity with your eyes open, your eyes closed. And before that, you also do an attention test. Um, and after, then you walk out and you have all this gel in your hair and have to go wash your hair. It's really right. fun. So it's a little Next. messy, but it's not, like, it's not painful. It's, you know, no, pretty it's quick, very so. seamless. Um, and so after that, you and I had our first meeting where we went over that um, QEG and the attention test results. And I think the, the, one of the most interesting things, and this was true for both Lincoln and I, is that, like you said, you're able to look at the map and notice patterns and make some hypotheses about what we might be experiencing. And you were really spot on for both of us. Um, and so for me in that first map, I think the two things that I recall most were the anxiety rumination type, um, and then also some emotional sensitivity or, um, sort of like getting, like having emotional triggers that I would get stuck on for a while. So yeah, we, we looked at your data and we measured your attention and we found you're a pretty good performer. Um, we can look at data if you want. Yeah, let's do it. So if, if you're uh, watching on video, you'll be able to actually see my brain map. And if you're listening on audio only, I will make sure to make little mental, little verbal notes about what we're looking at. So let me share this and then minimize this. So no, I don't go. Okay. So what I've brought up for you is the attention task. This is, we actually have two sides to this. So there's a left side called attention the right side is called response control. And what these things are is, how, is measuring how well you can activate the gas and the brakes. Um, so we have you for 20 minutes. Basically, we try to bore you to tears. Not to tears, but, but we really bore you a little bit. And the way we do that is we flash a number on the screen, about three inches tall, really easy to see. Uh, it's a one or a two. It's a bright green number on a black screen. So it's super easy to see. Uh, it's in a big box too. And we also speak the, you know, or visually, or we speak the audio. We speak the, the same number, one or a two, over the audio. And the only instructions given at the beginning of the test that walks you through the instructions is to make sure you click on the one and don't click on the two. But the stimuli are coming relatively slowly, and there's about 440 of them for about 23 minutes. So the computer's going, one, <laughs> one. <laughs> That's two. a very good impression. <laughs> Is that your voice on that recording? No, it's not. No, it's not. It's one of the one of the employees of Brain Train. Uh, um, but I've heard that one many, many, many thousands of times. Yeah. Uh, so the left side of the test is how well you can click when the one comes up, and the right side is how well you can not click when the two comes up. And this left side here, uh, called attention, shows your attention's pretty good. It's got a 107 as the main score. And the way the scoring works, like most population things, 100 is typical, plus or minus 15, roughly. So 107 is kind of a high average. But when you dig in a little bit, the visual system is gorgeous at 118, and the auditory is only 95. So we're starting to get into some of the value of doing attention testing with a personal training eye instead of a diagnostic psychologist eye. Because psychologists see 95 probably can go, eh, it's fine mm -hmm. for the most part. Or 107, wow, above average, great. But I'm, what I'm noticing is within one person, the auditory system is low average, 95, the visual high average, above high average, 118. That's almost two standard deviations of change within one person for something. That's unusual. And when we dig into the subscales in the bar graphs below, we see something called focus, which is that it's in auditory, it's a 92, but in visual, it's 119. So that's the core difference is this thing called focus. Vigilance, which is the 
light blue bar here. Vigilance is being alert to things changing. When the one changes into the two and vice versa, it's a vigilance check. And you're above average. You're 106 and 106. So really, you know, nice and rock solid, vigilant, alert to things changing. But when things get repetitive, when the one flashes on the screen again and again and again, we call that focus. Nicely above average, way above average, 119. But when it happens auditorily, one, mm-hmm. one, 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 you drift. Which and I we, certainly notice. And mm-hmm. I think even in, I think I brought this up in our first call is that I notice I have a very slow reaction time when it comes to audio, like processing or hearing things, which I, I promise, I always told my parents I was, I was listening. You were trying to listen. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lincoln, not my fault. You can tell Lincoln, not your fault. Um, <laughs> you want to listen. And, you know, again, not a, not a performance issue in the moderate range of typical, but I'm finding a bottleneck of unusual pattern sticking out and that's likely relevant. We also will look at your brain in a minute. There's brainwave unusual stuff right behind one of your ears. So we start to narrow our ideas for some valid measurement, and then we go look for hypotheses. And there's an auditory hypothesis jumping out in that data set. So we were like, oh, okay. And we trained that resource. And you know, even after COVID, you'd have, you, know, you were two weeks post-COVID or something, and this middle map and the one on the right was a few days later. The ones in the middle and right of the screen are only a few days apart. And those are, those are both better, significantly better performance in spite of, I'll show folks in a minute, your brain looking really foggy. So your overall attention went from 107 to 116 and 123, basically. So you went from high, from high average to well above average in performance. And that bottleneck of 92 and 90 and the focus and speed for the auditory, the focus went from 92 to 115. You know, So you got this one and a half standard deviation jump in sustained auditory work in spite of being knocked over by... Uh, the coronavirus, in spite of feeling really out of it, in spite of your brain looking like the sleep and stress were really thrown off, you were performing better through it. So this is why I was having some cognitive dissonance trying to figure out why your brain maps <laughs> so looked the way they looked. Because yeah. this looks like you're performing through whatever was going on in the brain without it really infecting you. Mm-hmm. Which was, I think, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, which is really fascinating to me because I think even to clarify the timing of these, the first one I had done right before Christmas um, in New York. And I'm pretty sure that's where I did get COVID around the time of Omicron Christmas time. And I was sick just after right around Christmas. And then, um, and then I noticed some improvements in focus, attention, um, anxiety, rumination symptoms, as I was training neurofeedback, January, February. And then it was early March that I just all of a sudden noticed like, and I had mild COVID symptoms. I had, you know, a runny nose and a headache for about a day or two. And that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, in early March, there was just one day where all of a sudden I felt so tired. I went to bed at 8 PM, which is never happens. I slept for 11 hours. And then it just felt like I needed a lot more sleep. I was sleeping a lot more. I was feeling more brain fog later in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, feeling like if I didn't have, like, as long as I had my routine, like I was getting enough sleep and I was meditating and doing the things I knew to do, I, mm-hmm. I was feeling okay. But if those were off, like if I got one bad night of sleep, uh-huh. it was like everything toppled over. Um, and so I had been scheduled to do my next brain map in March and didn't really think much of it. And then we found, you know, all of these, these new findings. And then the the last attention test was in June. So this was after doing about 30 more sessions of neurofeedback. 
Oh, so that's right. Sorry. The, the middle one. Yeah. Uh, the first to the second was 30 sessions. The second to the third was 30 sessions. You're right. Mm-hmm. Um, I had another one that I haven't bothered to open up. That's, that's a duplicate essentially right. this middle one, mm-hmm. but, but I had to open the background. I was confused about which ones I was looking at. Yeah. The one on the right says is 610. The one in the middle is 323. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. So um, you can also see the sustained scores here. It's a 104 at the beginning in December jumped to 114 and then 118. So you actually leveled up into March and then sort of stabilized and kept going. You can see some of the bars kept getting bigger in June. And this left side of the test is attention, the alertness, grabbing stuff. The right side is pumping the brakes, which showed some stamina issues, but that was it. The blue bars low, it's called stamina. That means you got harder to become resistant and you uh, burned out a little bit. When you click on a two, the deeper into the test you got when I first met you. Um, and then here, what we're seeing is uh, the response control quotient or how well you can pump the brakes and not click by mistake was 108 at the beginning. And again, visuals 114, auditory is 100. So we're seeing an auditory specific bottleneck. And then by March, you were at 106, which is about the same score, but auditory and visual were now both 100 or above. And now, or last month, now the response control, the self-control is 125. And the auditory, which had the problem, is 128 itself. And now the visual at 114 is the one that's lagging because they sort of overshot and got really strong in the thing that used to be the weaker of the two. So huge changes, two full standard deviations of improvement, um, sustained auditory improved, and so did sustained visual, which went from 100 to 119 to again, 118. So it leveled up and stabilized. Mm-hmm. So you've had really good changes, the best I could hope for, for somebody without giant problems, so to speak, in their executive function. This is about as good as it gets. If you did have crazy problems, we would have made more change. But this is like an efficiency and a rock solid dialing in your attention that I'm really happy to see. And apparently we've left you now more than a standard deviation above average across the board. Everything's stable. Everything looks awesome. You know, 125 is a big difference than 107, than one. Uh, 108, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of not being impulsive. And the 123 is a big, de- a big difference than 107 in terms of not being inattentive or spacey. A full standard deviation against the average person in terms of how crisp, you know, self-controlled mm-hmm. you are. Yeah, so. and I've definitely noticed that. Um, and just to, to bring it back to the process, so we did this first brain map, and then um, I did the neurofeedback sessions, and you have a remote program. So you actually sent a laptop that has all the equipment. And I was able to work with somebody on Zoom to attach the sensors for each of my sessions. And based on our initial conversation, or actually maybe we go back to the that first QEG and sure. talk about what you saw and then how you design the specific training and program based on what you're seeing. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that's really unique too. There's, there's other neurofeedback products out there that are, I think more like one size fits all versus taking this very um, individualized approach. Yeah, so we have your first brain map here from December. You can see the date in the upper right-hand corner. And then just to orient folks for a second who are watching, we're looking at a bunch of colored circles that represent the amounts of brain waves compared to the average person. But I want to caution folks, just being unusual than average isn't a big deal. And the amount that you're unusual than average doesn't determine how problematic things are because people are weird. So good job. You know, be weird. <laughs> we're all weird and unique. We're all My weird. My old coach used to say, everybody's a special snowflake. That's right. That's right. Um, so we're all a little bit weird. But some of the things that get in the way classically for humans are unusual, you know, so to speak. So when those things get in the way, you can see them. So 
you don't assume, unlike the performance test we just looked at, where if there's a performance hit, guess what? It's valid. There's, it's, it's really a, an actual score. You can think about what it means. But in the brain maps, we're just looking at more raw data, the amounts of alpha or beta or whatever those things are. And we have to then think, ah, for the, you know, this is in this part of the brain. It operates this way. And here's what's plausible. For the average person, it might get in the way this way. Or it might be a strength this way or a quirk this way. And try to figure out by modeling the unusual stuff, like giving a plausible you know, framework around how they could operate, if we're finding things you already know about or things you picked up on your performance test, essentially. And that's the most valid stuff to then go after, to push around, and to get some changes in if we're lucky. Uh, well, we're almost always lucky. We almost always get good changes. This is your first map. And it looks pretty fine. Um, the color bar here at the bottom that I'm going to zoom in on is representing a bell curve. So when things are up in the oranges or in reds, there's lots of brain waves um, or lots of connectivity or lots of speed. And when it's blue, it's low amounts of brain waves or low connectivity or low speed or something. And so we're seeing places in which you're unusual. And if I said to you, I probably did, I'm sorry, my mouse is not behaving. I said to you early on in this map, oh, this little cluster of alpha waves on the left front corner of the head, your alpha is unusual, it's a little higher than average. Well, that's a true statement. Um, now, does it mean anything for you? I didn't know at that stage. I just had a couple of ideas. And there's actually two features in your alpha here. As you may notice, there's alpha on the left side a little bit, and there's alpha in the, in the front middle of your head. And that, at the time I guessed this, that front midline structures the anterior cingulate, probably stuck in a high idle. And so my hypothesis would have been something like, ah, the anterior cingulate selects what we're thinking about. Yours appears to be stuck in a high gear. My guess is you might be stuck on things in your head at times. And I would have said, yes, that you is 100% yes. true. <laughs> and I probably talked about the fact that you have some relatively high alpha in the left front corner. When you go look at the left front corner for beta, you see the beta is low in the left front corner of the head, this left frontal lobe. And the left frontal lobe is like the happy little kid on the porch. The right frontal lobe is a grumpy old man on the porch. And as things walk by, the happy little kid says, hi, you want to play? Oh, can I show you something? Oh, what are you doing? And the grumpy old man says, get off my lawn. Hey, slow down. <laughs> so this avoid versus approach balance is always operating to manage resources and excitement and activation and stress. And the left front is that happiness, that buoyancy, that writing motion, that resilience. And yours is not making a lot of beta waves. So I would have guessed that it was hard to summon that happy little kid. Yeah, I want to do stuff. And if I gave you a cool project, your first gut response may have been, oh, more work. Not, ooh, interesting. <laughs> Because a sense of burden and withdrawing and protecting yourself probably will have crept in, essentially. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I tend to do cold uh, um, hypotheses each time. I'm assuming I made the same hypotheses in December. Uh, we also see here behind your right ear. That's another big one for you. A lot of alpha waves and some of the beta waves are back there. There's a big circuit behind the right ear called the temporoparietal junction, TPJ. And on the right, the TPJ's job is to map the world into the mind in a bunch of ways. And your TPJ looked a little hot, so to speak. And this is also auditory tissue. Mm -hmm. So I was sort of saying, aha, well, this is definitely auditory, like inefficient or loaded up. This is mostly, most likely related to the auditory performance. That's interesting. Very likely to be a real performance hit for you. That's worth going after. But then there's other things suggested by this. I wouldn't see an intention test. So those hypotheses would be things like, what I call the princess and the pea phenomena, where you can't ignore anything around you, and all the random background sounds get in. It's a sensory integration issue. That's what it really is. 
But when you have this like filter of the information coming in, that's kind of wide open, things get loud, like literally loud. The world's too loud, but also social information can get kind of loud. This can produce a sensory irritability and a social anxiety, a social loading for some folks. And then since you have both the anterior cingulate, the front midline and behind the right ear as activated, Mm -hmm. there's a specific flavor of perseverative stuck and sensory irritated thing that can, that can happen when they both show up. And it's called misophonia. It's being mm. like obsessively rage-filled or irritated by certain sounds. Like that nails on chalkboard bucket has more, way more things in it. Like your partner chewing makes you want to, you know, kill them or something because you're just so ridiculously, you know, uh, uh, hairs in the back of your neck standing up, can't tolerate the sound kind of thing. Um, so I would have guessed these things, walked through a bunch of resources. We probably also looked at your alpha wave speeds, which are how fast your brain is. And we saw that the, sorry, delta wave speeds and, and alpha wave speeds, these are speeds here on a bell curve. So zero is pretty typical. And your left hemisphere, we were seeing your alpha waves running kind of slow, zero is average. And you're running kind of slow. And more importantly than slow, you were spreading out. Some places you were right around zero, other places you were dipping down to almost one, negative one. And in somebody who's in their 30s, you might not notice this a lot. Um, but as you hit 30s, 40s, 50s, the slowed alpha produces a lot of word finding issues and delayed recall and tip of the tongue phenomena. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a speed of processing index, loading things in and out of your mind gets a bit draggy. And as you can see alongside that, your delta waves were very, very fast, two to three standard deviations, faster than average. And delta has a couple of phenomena that show up. One, when we aren't getting good deep sleep, delta starts to climb in number. So we see a fast delta. And my metaphor here is normally delta um, is a little bit happening during the day for heart and lungs and background metabolism. You kind of live in delta. You don't think in it. It's life to some extent. It's also slow wave sleep. So when this happened, delta running really fast, it's kind of like imagining your brain is an office building and you come in every morning and it's spartan, sparkly and shiny and there's fresh coffee and ooh, spring water because a team of 20 comes in at night and efficiently cleans the whole place and resets it for you. Mm-hmm. Well, this brain with the delta being really fast and high amounts of it and the alpha being slow, your, your, your spruce team, your, your pit crew of 20 people has been dropped to eight and they're still there at 11.30 in the morning, getting in the way of the workers, spilling trash, trying to rush around, clean up because it's too few of them and they're tired themselves. So it's this like sleeping metabolic repair state lingering into the wakeful state, but also running really fast, trying to like catch up in some ways for being really foggy. Mm-hmm. That's what I would have guessed. Yeah, for sure. Which isn't for comfortable. Sure. Yeah. And I and, think, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, when we find these things, I mean, I, I can already sort of, people tend to react to seeing their brains a couple of ways. One is like, ooh, interesting. And a very mm-hmm. common way, unless we're careful to point some things out, is like, oh, wow, I'm uncomfortable. That's really unfortunate. But I want people to know that if you see stuff in a brain map that is real, you can almost always change it. If it's not real, who cares? If it is real, you have agency. Mm-hmm. So brain mapping is not diagnostic, but if we find real things, you can exercise those things and make them change almost always. So the brain's hard to understand, but not hard to push around. Absolutely. So, and that's been one of the things that's been most um, cool for me to experience is mm-hmm. seeing the actual changes as I've done the neurofeedback. So after this initial brain map and you um, came up with a program for me and I would do those sessions at home and, you know, for me, I was probably doing three days a week. Each session is about 30 minutes, takes a little longer by the time you set it up. And, and, um, you know, I was noticing 
a, a big improvement in things like rumination, um, emotional sensitivity, focus. And, um, you know, despite that, then in March coming back with um, some brain fog and some increased fatigue and things like that, which we were surprised to find on that map. And, and so now if you're watching on video, you can see that yeah, this is that map in the comparison, which I think yeah. just for anyone looking, it looks alarming because at first you see all this nice green there's, and blue and now you see all this red. red. <laughs> yeah. So in March, there was tons of red and a lot of it in the sides of the head, the back of the head, a lot of Delta and Theta and Alpha. So the three left columns are slow brain waves where life is. The three right columns are where the brain, the mind, the you know emotions, the spirituality, all the human experiences in the right side of the page. And alpha is in both categories. So I was like, why are slow brain waves all blowing up? That isn't good. Um, and it's much worse than I'd seen it three months prior. Mm-hmm. And yet the front midline hotspots were actually still dropping away in spite of the stuff getting worse. And this is your brain, I'm bringing it up now, uh, in June. So we saw you in, in March. We have two maps that are almost the same. Here, I'll resize this a little bit. Um, and then I'll minimize. There we go. Uh, so what we're looking at now is June versus, sorry, March on the left and June on the right. And as you can see, and, and I should tell folks, brain maps don't change on their own, generally. If you map your brain every month, day in, day, you know, month in, month out for a year or two, it's pretty much the same every time, unless you're doing big things to yourself and, and mm-hmm. making changes. Um, or acutely distorting yourself, caffeine, cannabis, Adderall, you'll see changes and they're interesting. But clean brain maps look the same for one person. That's a little bit why they're in some ways uh, deceptively sexy. You know, we, we want to believe them because it's us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same mm-hmm. thing every time. But here we see a very large change. And what you're seeing is the slow brain waves, especially in the thetas and the alphas, especially in the frontal lobe. The alpha was basically red. Um, in the frontal lobe and dark red in the front right in, in March. And it's all gone green and yellow pretty much now. And that front left is the happy little kid. Alpha's neutral. So in March, the happy little kid couldn't find any joy, any buoyancy, any resiliency, drive. You probably increased word finding issues. Mm-hmm. You were like, oh That's man, right. my brain's foggy. Right. And all that alpha, most of it is gone now. So we, aren't, we haven't got you back to green yet, but all that frontal lobe concentration, activation, uh, motivation on the left is almost right where we want to get it. Probably subjectively, it's a big change. Mm-hmm. Probably 100% yet, I would guess for you subjectively, but we're getting somewhere. And the right front is where more of a dread, that cranky old man gets overwhelmed and like freezes up on his porch. And it's a dread experience when theta and alpha show up on the right front. It can lead to depressive stuff too. So... You know, you look so much better in that frontal lobe organization. You've gone just about all the way back to where you, to the, to the green level for most of these features. And we are still seeing, well, we're seeing something interesting. One is behind the right ear, which was the big uh, sensory uh, input area, if you will, the social and sensory TPJ. We see it really activated back in March across all brain waves and the beta brain waves showing up there suggest you were probably having a lot of, a lot of uh, sensory issues. And, you know, folks that have had COVID know this post COVID long COVID, which happens at least half the time, basically feels like a concussion. And I'll tell you folks, it looks the same on a brain map. It looks like a concussion a few months later, just like, and just like a concussion. Sometimes you don't see the effects in the electricity of the brain right away. If you did an x-ray of the brain of concussion, you wouldn't see much unless it was very severe. Same with an EEG. 
but all that inflammation and change function starts to bloom over two or three months. So this map here in March, if you got COVID in December, is probably you at the peak of things being bad in your EEG. And then they would have hung out there essentially for the next year or two, unless you worked on them. And then here we're seeing on the right that you've been able to wake the frontal lobe up really nearly perfectly. And then behind the right ear, that social and sensory area, the sensory overwhelm, maybe some social sensitivity or Jackson sensitivity, social anxiety stuff for some people, um, that is also lifted beautifully in spite of every, in spite of the stuff that's not completely changed yet. We have the delta, you know, those little blobs of delta next to the ears are actually sort of a little bit worse. So this is probably your residual like long COVID stuff, a little inflammation, mm -hmm. if you will, a little sleepiness. And this is getting in the way still of the quality of your deep sleep, probably, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I think, you know, from my experience too, it was, it was so interesting to have this brain map that then matched my experience of all this new brain fog and increased sleep need and things like that. And then to know, okay, there's something we can do about it. And we mm -hmm. did neurofeedback then for the next couple of months and were able to see some improvement. I'm curious, you know, because this made me ask a lot of bigger picture questions. Like you, you are happen to be mapping people at regular intervals who are part of your program. And I'm sure many of those people have, you know, had COVID during the last couple of years. And so I'm curious about what your bigger picture perspective is on that and the, you know, the impacts of long COVID on brain health. And then for people listening, you know, what is there that we can do about it to help our brains recover if we are experiencing these symptoms? Obviously, neurofeedback yeah. is one tool, but what else can yeah. we use? So I, I do see a lot of brains, um, both before the pandemic and afterwards. And since I do this personal trainer, let me teach about your data. Hey, data is cheap and, and or free long term. People tend to engage with data at gathering really easily themselves. So I have the luxury with some clients of a decade of data and just dozens of maps. I mean, even, even you and your partner, I have a bunch of maps now mm -hmm. on and it's given mm -hmm. us that little snapshot perspective. Um, but a lot of folks that I've worked with, I've worked with for months for concussions or anxiety or trauma or whatever years ago. They call me and I'm like, hey, how's it going? They're like, ah, oh, I'm brain fog, COVID. <laughs> Okay. So we look at it and I would say again, like I was saying a minute ago, nine times out of 10, that post COVID brain fog looks kind of like a concussion. The alpha slowed down. So the quality of deep sleep is lousy and speed of processing and word finding is crappy. Delta swelled up, especially the temporal lobe. And you can't think clearly. It's hard to pull memories out. Your balance is kind of wonky and you can have like a, a sensory sensitivity. Light and sounds get bright sometimes like they would in a concussion. Um, very, very common. What I have also noticed is that for clients I've worked with that have injuries, a lot of them have some mild brain injuries that get resolved over the course of, you know, three to six months of neurofeedback or something. For a lot of clients with old injuries, the COVID latches on, the inflammation latches on mm. to the old injuries and it blows up those things first and or those things get, you know, like, it's like having a second concussion after a first one, that second one does the damage. COVID finds those old inflammatory areas that makes them a little bit stuck again is what I've been, been able to see. Um, so yeah, I do a lot of things to help people beyond that. Um, but also let's think about, you know, uh, long COVID is um, even, you know, February of last year, there were articles in the Lancet showing that 50% of people that get COVID seem to have some neuro symptoms six months later. And mm -hmm. it's long COVID doesn't have to show up right away. And long COVID doesn't have to show up with any COVID symptoms, really. You can have mild COVID symptoms. I mean, I had a cold. Oh, I had COVID? Huh kind of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And a month later, two months later, oh, wait a minute, what's going on? And that was your experience, it sounds like. You got Absolutely. sick and infected yeah. with the virus in, in middle December or something. 
just just after I mapped you serendipitously, mm-hmm. uh, not that you got ill, but we had some data. <laughs> and then um, you probably didn't really feel, you're saying, you didn't really feel the brain fog until March sometime. And that track. So if folks are like, what the hell? I thought I was better. Mm-hmm. This can't be COVID. It might be because it's just like a concussion can kind of bloom. And it seems to do that in a lot of people. So there's that, my perspective on long COVID and or the, like it really, I'm in the sort of wellness space, right? And there's this, mm-hmm. there's this cool thing now in the wellness space is to be a jerk <laughs> and to say that, oh, you maskers are sheeples and come on, it's, it's, it's the refined sugars and seed oils and not get out in the sun. That's what's doing it until you get out in the sun and stop eating seed oils. T- talking about masks and, and vaccines, working the immune system, the thing, and 99% survival rate. Yeah, but that if you get ill, it really does have a toll. It's not like you exit it without, it's like getting a major flu. It's mm-hmm. life-threatening or resource-threatening at least. And I'm starting to think that long COVID is not the 50% or you know about half people. I think it's a lot of people are getting this secondary inflammatory thing. I also am starting to see research that suggests that a lot of the mechanisms of COVID doing the most damage to health and cognition and the mechanisms of long COVID may both be around factors of inflammation and clotting, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but this inflammatory thing and this clotting thing is in, in human bodies in general is a regulatory feature influenced by all kinds of factors in hormones and inflammation and energy flux. So I think that what we're seeing in terms of people that are at most risk for, for complications if they get COVID and people that get the sickest when they get COVID, people that don't recover as well, tend to have the same types of things, which is, are about energy flux and, and inflammation and clotting. But that means that prediabetes and mild obesity without diabetes and heart disease with low ejection fraction and any form of blood disorder, pretty much, that has different blood species that aren't well-balanced in the, in the cell types, all these things become in some ways precipitating factors for increased reaction to the virus, to the virus. So um, I uh, am trying to do what I can do to stay healthy. Part of that is not developing secondary risk factors like high blood sugar and mm-hmm. chronic stress and no sleep. So, you know, it, the things that keep us wellness and healthy and, and optimizing our wellness in general are also some of the same things. Other big biohacks that tend to work really well on all the same stuff that we're talking about would include hyperbaric medicine as a big one. You can throw someone into a hard chamber a couple of times and dramatically reduce their brain fog. It doesn't last, but it can be a really lovely lift and palliative. And you can see it on a brain map immediately, pre-post. Mm-hmm. It's really gorgeous. So and That was something that I did too, along with the neurofeedback from mm-hmm. in that interval between March and June. And it's hard to know what impact that had versus the neurofeedback alone, but you know, certainly some combination of those things were helping. I've seen an awful lot of people do neurofeedback alone, hyperbaric alone, or a mix for different brain complaints across the years, an awful lot. And hyperbaric alone doesn't do a whole lot for the brain. It does something for acute stuff, inflammatory stuff, but it doesn't do a huge amount. Neurofeedback often does a huge amount. If you add hyperbaric to neurofeedback, it doubles the impact of neurofeedback often. So I think what you did was you fed your brain really well while you gave it directed directed change Mm -hmm. information. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's sort of, Probably both is my guess in terms of what really did the heavy lift for you. Amazing. So hyperbaric medicine, uh, folks often ask what to do. I say 90-minute dives, 10 of them in two weeks, two atmospheres of pressure, which is a hard chamber, breathing in pure O2 if you can. 
Um, also things that can work very well is the hot and cold stuff. Saunas and ice baths, contrast cooling without ice baths, just sauna, cool shower, sauna, cool shower. works amazingly well for a mild hormetic stressor. With all of the hormetic stressor stuff, saunas, ice, et cetera, if you feel worse afterwards, don't keep doing it. Too good much rule for you right of thumb. <laughs> yeah. If you go to do a sauna, a sauna, good for you. And afterwards you're like, I got hit by a truck. Well, guess what? You just drove inflammation up and it got stuck too soon, too fragile. Give it, try other stuff, mm-hmm. you know? So, but I am a big fan of saunas. I am a big fan of ice. I am a big fan of cold showers. I am a big fan of red light therapy, but I don't understand red light therapy. That's one of those areas of biohacking where I'm like, ah, yeah, I don't know, something, it's doing something. And folks that have one, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah do it and, and, and do it this way. But I don't understand if it really, really closes the loop on, uh, on stuff. When I do directed red light stuff, like, I don't know if you or Lincoln have, um, I use uh, infrared sensors to measure the brain's blood flow. We've used that, yeah. You have, yes. Yeah, so you have one of these then. It's called HEG, passive infrared, PIR. Um, HEG or hemoencephalography means that you're able to measure the brain's temperature. Like you're looking at waves uh, on a beach crashing the shore to figure out how active the ocean is. So we have these little infrared sensors we wear Mm -hmm. and it points inward, the little camera and you concentrate and you, you can maybe drive blood flow up. And over time, it's a great tool for COVID brain fog, for migraines, for, um, developmental stuff in the frontal lobe. It works really interestingly. So hi, the reason I mentioned this is hyperbaric chambers are really expensive, especially hard chamber access, but tools like this are relatively low cost uh, compared to that. Mm-hmm. So you can get a lot of directed targeted use. Like this is a tool we're going to want to use uh, more for you, but apparently yeah. your frontal lobe hasn't woken up beautifully. So, you know. Um, so there's a lot that can be done. I think I also just want to you know, as we're talking about this post-COVID world and and the impacts of long COVID that, you know, yes, I had a great response from doing neurofeedback over the course of a couple of months, but if someone doesn't have access to neurofeedback, there still are plenty of other tools that that we can use. And we would think that this should improve and you should return to your normal brain function over time, correct? For many people, yeah. Um, I think especially if you uh, do some fasting, do some low carb, do some super high quality nutrition. Um, when thinking about nutrition, and, and that's the most accessible biohack for most folks, sleep is accessible, but that's mostly about doing what you know you should do. <laughs> um, but nutrition is people have lots of ideas about. And when you have what I call ectopic energy, when it spills out into you know, fatty liver is ectopic energy. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's too much storage of fat. And you can get fatty muscle if you have too many triglycerides and fat floating around. Your muscles become fatty too eventually. So that's the stuff that I'm concerned about in terms of long-term health. And if you have ectopic energy, fatty liver, fatty muscles, a lot of not belly fat, but abdom- uh, visceral fat under the abdominal wall, around the organs, that's, that those are, um, fat is, uh, adipose is um, hormonal tissue. It is glandular tissue. It is not inert. And it, it, it tum- dumps out huge amounts of inflammatory cytokines and things that drive blood sugar variation and drive hunger and it tends to be really difficult. So that's the one biohack. If you're going low tech and you're going at, at everything, I mean, I, I, this is not just low tech. This is the <laughs> foundation to start with this in sleep is, is I think it's really important to learn to control that, that metabolic flux. So it's not overfilled, nor is it leaving you 
adapting to deprived nutritional states, energy states, et cetera. And there's a line there. We don't want to become orthorexic and too hyper-focused on this, nor do you want to join the church of some particular you know, keto guru, but you want to sort of navigate your information into the backdrop of what is understood to figure out how you can move yourself. So again, the biohacking perspective of iterative data. I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of that. Yeah, I love that. And then it's not like, suppose you want to be in more of a state of ketosis for a specific reason, for a specific period of time. It's very different than doing it for the rest of your life. And like you said, right. just understanding how to use these tools and then being able to objectively monitor in yourself what's working and how it's working. Yeah. And I think you, I think you mentioned a good point there, which is the reasons to do this type of metabolic biohacking or fasting or keto or whatever. The reasons you're doing it should change how you do it, how you fast, how strict you are. If you're a kid with lots of seizures, you've got to go seriously low carb and actually pretty high fat, or it won't work well for you. If you're a stage competitor trying to get ready for the stage in two months, you've got to drop carbs and fat. Otherwise you won't shred body fat. And not not once you're lean, anyways. Um, but if you're just trying to like remain healthy, then there's a much wider range of what you can get away with. And now perspective on remaining metabolically flexible, so you can, you know, have plenty of energy, have a robust immune system, not have too much inflammation, but yet also not fall into a coma walking by a donut shop because you smelled sugar or something, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, anyways, that's my perspective on it. <laughs> I love it. Well, as we get ready to wrap up, I want to touch a little bit about. Uh, on the applications of neurofeedback and where you see the future of this tool mm. in our arsenal of of mental health tools, I think that you know I know you're not specifically clinical, and I, I you don't you're not specifically treating diseases per se, but there's a lot of um, conditions that have improved in people who do neurofeedback, and I sure. think even in our conversation so far, we've talked about anxiety, we've talked about PTSD, concussions. Yeah, yeah infections, ADHD, ADHD, migraines, sleep. Um, There's so many, you know, our brains obviously do a lot. Um, So I'm curious, um, first, if you could share where you see the future of neurofeedback um, and and what the potential you think is um, in our either, you know, just for our population and and clinically. I mean, this will ring true. This will resonate for you. Um, The difficulty doing neurofeedback is both understanding one person's brain and then understanding how what you're trying is impacting them or if it is or what it's Mm -hmm. doing. And people are so variable that the best, I believe the best neurofeedbackers are not one that have the best tools that have the most magical system, the most complex set of wires to put on your head, but who can carefully try something and learn from it and then get you a little further each time. At least across people, that's the safest way. It may not make every person fast better than most, you know, magically, but it's the most reliable, I feel, across people. So that's how I I um I tend to work. But that does mean that there's a burden, an art burden almost, a a, a creativity burden in terms mm-hmm. of like your best personal trainer in the gym can get people progressing faster because they kind of know how every little person's body works, how to balance workouts, how to you know, give this person gruff, tough love, but they're sleeping mm-hmm. to give this person a donut because they're celebrating, you know, their birthday, like there's <laughs> different strategies. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, that iterative round trip of feedback, no pun intended, like, yeah. you know, we have you and Lincoln fill out surveys, ideally twice a day. How was your mm-hmm. sleep? How was your day? And most of so I can Marco Polo my way towards your goals, you know, warmer, colder, getting there, getting there, maybe not. 
and try to get elicit some effects and see something subjective and then move a little further. That's very complicated. And it takes an awful lot of things held in my mind at once, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And it's a skill. And it's a, it's the reason I, it's a bit of a bottleneck for my company. You know, I have a couple people in the company who can do it, but it's a bit yeah. of a bottleneck. Um, most therapists and neurofeedback only have 20 clients or 30 clients because of this bottleneck. I mean, I have, I have, I have a few hundred, but I also have a whole team of coaches that are amazingly gifted, skilled, gentle, calm, caring people mm-hmm. who are technically savvy, who help people learn and do stuff. So I don't have to do everything. But to answer your question, I think where it's going is a way to index and round trip this quantified self thing, dashboards of health and sleep trackers. And I think it's all going to coalesce eventually into intelligent avatars we can use to test interventions on. So I have a map of your brain. And if I also had really, really tight integration with all your state and trait changes day to day, just that, just you not having to tell me, but your, your aura ring, your bed, mm-hmm. your stress, the whatever, mm-hmm. all the metrics getting in from all your devices, just registering that better. And then you logging in as a, as a dashboard we could share, like the, the tool we built that you work on, the thing we call our portal, um, a version of that that's a little more tightly integrated that actually starts to show the trends of these things as they are visualized against each other. The stuff that I tend to do offline, you know, trends of sleep and stress and mood changing against your beta waves or against the stuff we've tried. Um, this will let you drop interventions on multi-scale graphs and look at what's working and learn from your progress and look retrospectively. That will also then let me replace me and people like me with machine learning. Let's mm-hmm. predict what might work for this person. Let's feed in more information so that when someone comes in with an unusual brain and a bunch of hard responses and we're not getting what we expect, they're one of a thousand people in the world, maybe. And the database eventually has enough people like that that can be predictive and repeat, you know. So I'm trying to create a, I create a system now that is persisting giftedness of skilled coaches. And we're then going to use that to then mine predictive stuff eventually. But I think that will five, 10 years from now, we'll translate into intelligent avatars, virtual representations of ourselves. Like to take your current brain map and train it and see what happens and see Mm -hmm. like, oh, training that does this for her. Okay. Okay. Try this and get the effect we're looking for. Instead of have to have you feel a little weird or a little bit wired or tired or have your sleep turn off briefly, which is what side effects Mm -hmm. happen in your feedback, by the way, but to test on the models. So that's one benefit of real-time round-trip information. Another is we won't need to do databases, QEGs on the static arbitrary database. If I'm tracking information every day on you know, variable time axes, then we can do a brain map, caffeinated, stoned, having a psychotic break, whatever. And it's just a data point in a wild-type data, database of people's brains, which sort of solves some of the limits of EEG, QEG, which is this, this failure of the diagnosis, this now, there's patterns, there's phenotypes or endophenotypes, things that are true across people, like your beta blob right there. But that beta blob you have in the front midline of your head can be perseverative stuff for some people, you know, OCD. can also just be a CEO, somebody who's super highly focused with a mind like a steel trap. Mm-hmm. So you can't tell in a brain map if it's in the way. But if you were watching someone's stress markers for days and their sleep variability and their heart rate and a bunch of factors in a really tight way, the, the trick that I do about, hmm, I think this is happening for them. Let's try to make this happen for them. Wouldn't have to be a skill set and a gifted and a trained kind of art. It could be something that would be like, hey, let's ask the software. And 
people that have tried to create software thus far doing that generally haven't had the complexity uh, they need to um, or the systemization of neurofeedback they need to. So we're trying to make that change eventually. Well, that's very exciting to me. I think that just seeing the impacts of this myself and on my own experience and seeing it in others has been really profound and seeing, you know, like you said, in a world where we typically haven't had a lot um, other than medications to help people with their mental health um, that often come with, you know, side effects and other things that this, I think, is something that I have a lot of hope for just seeing, seeing the impact that it could have in a large scale and then the impact that that has on our society and how people, you know, if everyone's brains are functioning better, imagine what that means for the world that we're living in. Um, so I'm excited to see it grow and evolve over the coming years. Um, Thanks. Me too. <laughs> um, I want to close with three questions that I ask everyone at the end of the podcast and then give people an opportunity to learn more about where they can find you and what you do. But the first one I ask is what are the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? I would say number one is getting up really early. Mm, what I time is that for you? Um, I tend to sleep in until about four some days. Oh, wow. Sleeping but in. I often wake up before four and go, oh, until before four. Eh. <laughs> so, what time do you go to sleep? Eight. Oh, wow. 8.30. That's amazing. You know, um, but I do it. The circadian rhythm is really, um, it, it wants to be locked in. So mm -hmm. if you lock it in, you can get away with less sleep. Mm -hmm. So um, 8.30 is maybe optimistic. But if I am going to bed at 10 or 11, I need eight hours of sleep or seven and a half. But if I'm going to bed at eight or nine, I need like six. And I can get away with six for days and days and days. I like seven, I like six and a half or seven. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, it's, it's definitely doable. So getting up very early is a big, is more, probably my biggest life hack, honestly. Um, and it sounds cliche to say as an entrepreneur who gets up before everyone else, and, but <laughs> there's so many reasons I use it as morning rituals. Um, I do, I do, uh, uh, an Ashtanga yoga practice a vinyasa flow style yoga, mm -hmm. another very large, in, uh, uh, biohack for me, probably among the most mm. impactful. Mm -hmm. The third is probably fasting, a lot of periodic fasting. So I do. Um, I have a cycling thing called Litsy, leptin, insulin, mTOR cycling, where you play with the variables of time and calories and macros. And I tend to cycle 22, 44, and 66 hour fasts. But wow. I'm a middle aged dude who's a you know who's kind of pudgy. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm who I'm who aggressive fasting is meant for middle aged guys. Honestly, <laughs> if you're a young woman. There's, there's pitfalls. You got to watch when fasting yeah. and doing caloric restriction. Yeah. But if you're a middle-aged guy or a postmenopausal woman who's overweight or something or insulin resistant, we're perfect. It's like the one thing that's made for middle-aged people is, is, <laughs> uh, is, is energy, you know, flux stuff, restricting the fasting. So for me, I would say getting up early, uh, a regular, I have a minimal viable practice. I try to find the minimal viable activity I can do and then not skip it. Like mm -hmm. you don't generally skip going to the bathroom first thing in the morning. You also don't skip the, for me, it's five sun A and five sun B. So 25 minute you know, in opening and then a 25 minute little practice that I do mm -hmm. 28 days out of 30 roughly mm -hmm. um, just to essentially cause an energy flux to burn off the cortisol and glucose that woke me up without calling for tons more mm -hmm. before I go from lying in bed to becoming sedentary or working. Mm -hmm. I wake the whole system up basically. I love that. So, I love that. What a great way to wake up. And interestingly, um, we haven't touched on this, but you, I know you've told me before that for most people doing neurofeedback for 
you know, somewhere between 30 and 60 sessions for most people is what they need. And then, and then it really sticks with you. Um, it's not, you may want to do it again 10 years later or if something comes up, but do you, how often do you do neurofeedback now? It's a great question. Um, not that often, mostly because, uh, I'm lazy. No, mostly because, (laughs) um, I did a bunch and I changed myself fairly dramatically and I did it before I really got into neuro. I mean, I was, I was working as a tech in Providence mm-hmm. and I would hang out after hours and just do stuff to my brain, which I don't recommend. <laughs> but I managed to make very large changes. I did 18 sessions focused on ADHD and made three and a half standard deviations of change in my impulsivity scores or something. And then a decade later, did a little bit more. And you know, I've, I've been running my neurofeedback companies now for about six, seven years. I mean, I've probably done 100 sessions, 200 sessions in that time. Mm-hmm. But a lot of my neurofeedback over the past couple of years is, oh, hey, let me show someone something. And I'll set mm-hmm. some wires up and yeah. I'll get a screen share going. And I'll be like, so this is C4. I'll stick a wire on and look at that. <laughs> look at that bad signal. And I'll just do that enough to like create a new plan for someone or to try a new game that we're being offered by their vendor. So I don't do a lot of neurofeedback. For me, the, the big stuff got out of the way. If I got COVID, I would do it uh, a mm-hmm. lot. Um, if my stress ramped up, my sleep eroded, but you know, you change less. If, if you're well-regulated, you change less in your 40s and 50s and beyond. Mm-hmm. And I was really poorly regulated in my 20s and used neurofeedback as a heavy lifter. Now the stuff that I struggle with is trajectory stuff across life. So mm-hmm. while there will be, there are uses for neurofeedback in my life and I will still use it, for me, the big stuff is about the anti-aging and the pro-health and the body composition and mm-hmm. managing stress. So regular meditation, regular yoga, sleep hacking, macronutrient cycling with super low carbs every so often. That stuff to me becomes the, I call it functional neuroscience. It's the hacking the body to support the brain health. Most of the diseases of aging of the brain, diabetes, uh, all the dementias, um, even cancer, uh, Parkinsonian stuff. These most of these things are driven by glycation or oxidation of sugars, and so the fatty acids, the you know cholesterols and things, in the presence of oxidizing sugar, is what causes all the problem: atherosclerosis and dementia and everything else. So for me, hack. Also, I've been talking about the the body based biohacking, the functional neuroscience is to support the machine up top more mm-hmm. than to get nice abs. I wouldn't be sad if I had nice abs. But, <laughs> it's not a bad right? side I'm, I'm not opposed. I'm not opposed. <laughs> but, it's, but it's nice that a side effect of a health hack for your mind gives you a nice body, essentially. Yeah. So yeah. for Foreign me, I, function. I never had, I mean, I wasn't a super athlete. I did a lot of cycling as a kid. And as even as a college person, I, and I, was, I was captain of the UMass fencing team in undergrad. A solitary sport though. Mm-hmm. Um, I never was a serious like athlete, never got really, really, really in shape as an, as an adult post-college. And so for me, I got my brain in shape pretty well. So now I struggle with keeping it in shape and doing things that will help me mm-hmm. you know, remain repressibly youthful for the next 50 years. You know, so. I love that. This goes into the next question, but what's one thing that you think would have a big impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it or something you're working on? Yeah, I mean, this might be a function of the pandemic. I'm, I'm going I'm to say it is, even though it's not. Um, I really don't do enough resistance training. Mm-hmm. And it's a big thing I coach people on when they're doing it. I encourage them to do it. But for me, with my lifestyle, my routine, my laziness, whatever, 
um, I do not do enough resistance training. I really need to, I really want to, and know that it would benefit me to build yeah. in uh, two to four times a week of heavy, heavy stuff. And when I have had that in my life, um, you know, it's helped my health and wellness longer term. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I happen to have the benefit of not having a lot of physical, you know, I, I'm a fairly muscular, I'm fairly in shape and I, you know, been that way for a while. So it's, it's somewhat important for me as a guy who's 51, but like, it's a lot more important for a woman who's 51 or somebody who's trying to drop 30 pounds of body fat and become insulin sensitive again. It's so much more important for people that are trying to address something to do the resistance training. It is important for me, but it's something that I'm going to build in at some point over the, you know, over the next, uh, Fair enough. maybe I'll send you a barbell or some kettlebells or something. Nice. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't send me kettlebells because like many people who got into stuff in pandemic, I got really good at sourdough and I got a full set of kettlebells. So I'm, I'm good. <laughs> there you go. Good uh, on that. If you want to, if you want a sourdough recipe, I have <laughs> that's great. Last question is what does a healthy life look like to you? One where you're managing the demands appropriately and still finding fulfillment, essentially. I mean, we all have stressors. We all have good and bad. We all have exertion. And in fact, you want to have exertion, that, that positive press, that, that, that desirable difficulty. You don't want to like go sit in a rocking chair and just be idle. We, we fall over without pressure. Mm-hmm. So you know, pressure is a thing and it happens. And it's, it, it, it also means that relief of it becomes sweeter. But if we find fulfillment in the effort, effort becomes enjoyable. You know, things like dopamine and testosterone make effort enjoyable, largely. That's why, you know, we do things that are dopaminergic and start gambling and start buying things because the, the fulfillment of it is, is very reinforcing. But a life that is just stressful enough and, and has habits and behaviors and, and self-care and fulfillment, you know, ways of refilling your bucket, um, as well as all the other ways that people have fulfillment. I think fulfillment's a very personal thing. Some people, Mm -hmm. many humans get it from other people. Most people do, I think, get a lot from other people. Some folks get it from spirituality or from meditation or yoga or becoming the best musician with their really strange instrument that the world's ever seen. And they spend hours practicing their instrument. So I think any, I think a fulfilling life can be dramatically different one person to the next, but managing, if you feel fulfilled, if the stress and the recovery from stress are well managed to keep you resilient, flexible, elastic mm-hmm. in that stress response, buoyant in that grabbing the world, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I love that answer and that balance between the, the stress and resilience. And I think that um, and, and allowing that so that so that you are able to do the things that are fulfilling to you or, or, or spend your time the way that you want to. I think that for me. It was a great example of what happened with uh, the post-COVID symptoms is initially I needed a lot more um, self-care in order to balance the, out that stressor and I needed more sleep and I needed more time with meditation and I needed to be more careful about my diet and use neurofeedback, use hyperbaric. Now, like for example, this past week, I've missed my meditation several days and I have not gotten as much sleep. And while I'm not at my best, I'm not crashing and burning like I was a few months ago. And I'm still able to get through the day and do the things that I need to do um, and know that I'll get back there. So I love how you brought, brought that balance up. Great. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're feeling resilient in spite of some self-care habits <laughs> shopping away. But yes. as your coach, those self-care habits are super important. Oh, super important. Super important. Yeah. Um, so... I guess just to close, I would love for people to learn where they can find more about you, more about Peak Brain, 
um, and how they might get involved if they're interested in learning more about working with you or the remote program. Sure. So um, we do remote programs all over the US and folks can come to our physical offices in New York City, St. Louis, LA, or Orange County, California. We also have a few partners over in Europe for folks that want to get the brain map there. Um, for finding us, we're at peakbraininstitute.com is the main website. And Peak is all over the socials at Peak Brain LA. That was our first office. So that's all of our socials. And I'm at Andrew Hill PhD on the socials if you want to look at Lots of images of reverse seared steaks and occasionally baked goods. Um, <laughs> basically, you know, it's 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 just my personal stuff. But yeah, Peak Brain LA and Peak Brain Institute uh, are the two big uh, public facing things we have. And you don't have to come to one of the offices. I mean, I think you have come. You and Lincoln have come to offices for mm -hmm. maps at times. But the whole process, hundred percent of it, can be done without visits. But maybe three quarters of our clients never see our offices. And the coaches just work virtually in this way, essentially helping you uh, learn to use all the technology and coach you through doing more things. Awesome. So. And I think you said that if people do come to you from the podcast, that um, they would get a discount on, on those brain maps that you do, correct? Yeah. The in-office program is also can be applied to any of the remote programs. Um, the in-office uh Brain mapping works under a membership. So folks pay once a year and have access to unlimited mapping, uh, essentially. I do a few consults with you and then you can essentially do lots of mapping as you do things to your brain or look at medication or look at caffeine or whatever. So um, normally the membership is 500 bucks, but podcast listeners get a half price break on the podcast as if they're being referred in by a client, which they can also refer people into the same. But 250 for essentially, within reason, unlimited brain maps is about the best deal in the world to develop a sense of agency and perspective about what's happening. So we try to, I joke that we don't sell neurofeedback, we sell agency, we sell perspective. <laughs> you know, we help, and a lot of our clients, not, not a huge number, but 10%, 5% or something, mostly use us for the brain mapping mm -hmm. um, because they are trying to navigate, you know, some perspective on themselves and hit some goals. So the physical offices become sort of a club environment. We have mindfulness groups in the evenings on Zoom. You should join that Monday night, mm. Julie. Monday night, uh, uh, 6.30 Pacific time for an hour and a quarter every Monday with Ian. So if you need nice. some support, there's your there go. invitation, if that feels useful. <laughs> um, but yeah, folks get a discount and then they can apply that club fee, which is face value 500 bucks, and apply that to a training program in the future, essentially. Um, and we have training programs. It's about 5K for a three-month program, essentially. So we try to get like 50 sessions in neurofeedback and a couple more brain maps in. So in terms of the intensity, it's fairly intense neurofeedback. Mm -hmm. You aren't like training on your own with the same protocol. The coaches are checking in every day and giving you things to try. And they're there in five minutes to troubleshoot when you need help on your private chat that's always open seven days a week. So it's a very handheld process. But it's also, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, it's very much like personal training. So we really enjoy facilitating people's transformation. And that's how I navigate the mental health versus wellness piece, by the way. I work on attention, not ADHD or stress, not anxiety. But when I'm talking about your anxiety, I can talk about the specific circuits involved as actual physiology you're trying to work on without putting myself in the role of therapist. And by teaching you to read your brain map instead of writing a report about what I think it means, I'm, thr I'm thrusting agency upon you. I'm not creating transference intentionally. The really big part of us is we're not, we're really trying to keep agency and 
uh, and, and avoid that transference, avoid being put in local expertise. You know, that we want to make you should become your own neuroscientist. That's easier than us getting inside your head, mm-hmm. which is what therapists who do neurofeedback have to do to figure out what's happening. So awesome. Well, thank you. And thanks for that. Um, that offer, I think, you know, for people listening, I, I have zero skin in the game here other than I've had a great experience with Dr. Hill. Um, you know, I'm not getting any kickbacks from that discount, but I think it's such a powerful tool and the work you do is so important that I just want more people to know about it. And I'm excited to see as it continues to evolve. So thank you so much for taking the time Mm. just to share your story and your expertise here. Um, and hopefully some people listening will come and check you out. Thanks, Julie. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed talking to you this afternoon. Awesome. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.